2: My brother is a professor of German. He is equally comfortable speaking German, speaking English. So that's kind of how I feel about religion, that we may be born into a particular system. So it's always, it is going to kind of shape our view of reality a little bit, but we are absolutely capable of learning other ways to experience and express reality.
1: Passing by the, time. Stand up straight
0: away. the Deconstructionist Podcast is produced by Nicholas Rowe at the National Audio Preservation Society Recording Studio in Newark, Ohio.
3: Follow us on social media at www.thedeconstructionist.com, on Facebook at Deconstructionist Podcast. Twitter at Deconstructcast and Instagram at Deconstructionist Podcast. If listening to this podcast has
0: benefited you in any way, consider making a donation. The donate link is in the show notes, or you can visit our website and click the donate tab. Welcome, everybody, to the Deconstructionist Podcast. I'm Adam Narlock. I'm John
3: Williamson. And here's what we got for you this week. We have the final part, the third part of our three-part series on religious pluralism. And uh, we have our special guest this week representing uh, Hinduism, uh, Samya Arya Haas. Samya is the Digital Outreach Coordinator for Agape Editions, an imprint of Sundress Publications. Uh, she's also worked a ton in interfaith, intergroup dialogue uh, in her time at uh, Harvard University, and she is a uh, regular writer, uh, especially for Huffington Post and a couple other websites that you can find in our show notes. Uh, the big reason we had her on, though, is she is actually a, a priestess um, in Hindu, or in Hinduism, rather, and... Uh, Which and, we all know so much about. <laughs> yeah. Um, I know very little, uh, enough to be dangerous. Um, And so we just thought this would be a great way to bookend our series on religious pluralism. So
0: we'll catch you guys with some debrief after this delicious episode. You're going to enjoy this so much. But for now, we've got Samya Arya Arya Haas.
1: My back against the wall. Keep me still and wondering just why we focus. Don't, don't you wanna stay here? Or do you wanna stay
0: here? Well, Samia, Arya, Haas, we, uh, John, and I are just so excited for what's about to happen in this conversation. So thank you so much for being with us today.
2: Thank you, and on behalf of the Hindu community, this is the only time I tried to say anything on behalf of the entire Hindu community. Um, <laughs> we very pleased and honored to be here representing my faith.
3: Oh, that's awesome. So that, that's, that's a great point you made in there because that's kind of where I want to start. Um, but before we get into that, um, if you could, tell, tell our listening audience a little bit about yourself and uh, how you came into the work that you currently do.
2: All right. Well, um, first of all, I am American. I'm an American Hindu. Um, I'm also an ordained priestess of voodoo, but that's the podcast for another day.
4: Um. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
2: I was born into a a Hindu family. My family is very much a product of colonialism. Um, My mother's family was from the Caribbean. They were brought there by the British several generations ago. And I come from a matrilineal line of Hindu priestesses on my mother's side. My father was born in India, and he also comes from a traditional line of priests. So my religious education came from both sides of my family. There are certainly many women in Hinduism who function as priestesses, but it's a little unusual. And... Because of the situation with colonialism, my mother was born in Guyana, although my family was from throughout the Caribbean. Um, Hinduism in the Caribbean, of course, looks very different than it does in India, and Hinduism in the U.S. is different from India. I have lived in India and spent time there, but most of the experiences that I can represent are as an American Hindu. And, you know, I'd like to start with a disclaimer. Um India has, uh, India and Hinduism have about 5,000 years of recorded history. The subcontinent has seen immigration and invasion. Members of every world religion have at some point been in India. There's over a billion people in India and over a billion Hindus in the world. There's roughly, according to some accounts, about a thousand languages spoken in India, a great variety of ethnic groups. So I am not going to try to attempt to represent all of that. (laughs) I only represent my own experience and Hinduism is vast. There are many Hinduisms. So you could interview another Hindu who would completely contradict everything that I say. And very much in the philosophy of Hinduism, we would both be right. (laughs) My, uh, my family moved to the United States prior to my birth for my father to take a teaching position at the University of Minnesota. The brand of Hinduism that my parents practice is very much service oriented, so I was raised with the idea that being a priestess or just being a Hindu or further being a human um, is very much about service work. So. We moved to, I was raised in, in the U.S., in Minneapolis, which was kind of a small city at the time. I went to Catholic school because my parents believed that we should encounter and understand the faith that we were surrounded by. And when I was 10 years old, we moved to India, which was the first time I was going there. Um, my mother very quickly got engaged in social service work there and started an organization called Kale, stands for kindness, health, education and laughter. She is still around now, over thirty years later. My very first service work was assisting her when I was ten years old. Um, there's a lot of poverty in India. And we started out just bringing blankets and food, um, basic, very basic needs into marginalized communities. And that work has grown, and I grew with it. We now run a school and we serve a fairly large community. Pardon me. Um, Many of our students have gone on to college, to trade schools, some even to master's levels of education. So, for me, the basis of, of my service work, being an interfaith facilitator in the U.S., very much came out of what, to me, is a natural part of my identity. Um, so, post-9-11, I became very involved in interfaith outreach. There was a really... A need for it at the time. Our whole country was going through trauma, and a lot of anger was directed at brown-skinned people, Muslims, um, and it seemed that there was a need for education. Uh, Prior to that, I had been involved with some interfaith work, but it felt much less urgent. I would speak at local high schools. Um, I'd moved back to Minneapolis by this time, so I've spoken at local high schools, i um, a graduate of Minneapolis Community College. I was invited back there to speak about Hinduism and especially women's issues. And simply being a minority religion in the United States requires a kind of interfaith engagement in your daily life. Whether people identify it as interfaith, um, we all get the questions. Um, if someone meets me, where are you from? You know, they find out I'm a Hindu. So from the time that I was a young kid, I had to learn how to talk about my religion. And because there are a lot of misconceptions about all minority religions, I had to learn ways um, to engage with people and to explain, well, this might be how it looks from the outside, but as a Hindu, you know, this is how I experience it. So my interfaith work um, landed me in New Orleans, post-Katrina, and I was involved with um, a lot of the rebuilding there, bringing faith communities together to work on cooperative projects. Um, I've also worked with uh organization called Hindu American Seva Communities and helped organize uh, interfaith conferences at the White House and very pleased to take part in that work. I had a Accident, a traumatic brain injury in 2018, and it's only been in the last year that I've kind of returned to a professional life. So um, I'm mm. kind of picked up again after a, about a two-year medical hiatus. Um, while I was doing interfaith work, as I said, I had uh, done my associate's degree at Minneapolis Community College. Um, as my interfaith work kind of started to become more more nationwide, uh, I felt like I needed sort of accreditation. So I went back to finish my degree through Harvard Extension School and actually just last year finished my undergraduate in religion. I'm applying to grad school and I'm hoping to go into the field of the relationship between science and religion. I feel like there's a lot of great interfaith projects right now, but I'm seeing a Less facilitation between the con- conflicts, or conce- you know, what's conceived as a conflict uh, between science and religion. So that's mm. I'm hoping is sort of my, my next project. How can we how can we figure this one out? How can we find some common ground? So that's a bit of my history.
0: Um, Absolutely and still- fascinating.
2: <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. It really, the interest in science, I've always had an interest in science. I'm a huge geek, big science fiction reader, and I think that kind of led me naturally to an interest in science. Also, the type of Hinduism I was raised with does not position itself in conflict with science. So I've always been, although I can intellectually understand why someone's faith Would put them in conflict with science. That's personally not an experience that I have had. So I hope that that helps situate me to be a bridge builder um, and to find, you know, find common ground and find compromises, find ways to bring education to both sides of the table, as it were.
0: Um, Yeah, absolutely.
2: So, and I, you know, I call my work interface. Uh, To be honest, it's not a phrase I really like, um, but it's the best phrase we have right now. Intergroup sounds pretty vague. Um, I object a little to interfaith because I've worked as much with atheist and agnostic groups who do not identify themselves as part of a faith. So I always feel like it's a little bit um, disingenuous and a little bit... um, It's less... It's a little less inclusive to use interfaith when we're also engaging with people who have atheist philosophies.
3: But again,
2: if I say interfaith, people get a sense of what kind of work I do. So I've made my peace with it. I hope in the future a smart person will come up with a a better phrase for us to use moving forward.
0: You could could always just put a little asterisk and say that you're using the philosopher Tillich's definition of faith, which is just ultimate concern, and we all have ultimate concern.
2: That's a good one. That's a good one.
0: So I'll, I'll think about that one. <laughs> Just a little asterisk. You know, one thing I want to ask you about that, that whole back history is so fascinating. Um, we could go in a million directions from there, but something that I think, I mean, I perked up at John and I looked at each other. I'm sure our, our listeners are all wanting to hear a little bit more about like, what, what was it like going to Catholic school, being raised Hindu? What did that teach you? What are some of the, the takeaways from that? Like, what was that? How did that form you?
2: Well um it was it was interesting. Yeah. Uh, you know, my father's a philosopher, my mother's a writer. We were raised to be outspoken and to speak up for ourselves, but also to have respect for others. Um again, the type of Hinduism that I was raised with is very inclusive. It does not situate itself as being the end all be all. Um the analogy that I find we use a lot in my family also, because many of us are linguists is I really like the analogy of language. Mm -hmm. English is my um, Hinduism is my birth religion. However, it would serve me well if I want to communicate with more people to learn other languages. Um, That we may be born into a particular system. So it's always, It is going to kind of shape our view of reality a little bit, but we are absolutely capable of learning other ways to experience and express reality. And because I started Catholic school at a young age, um, my family lived in northeast Minneapolis, which uh, I can't say that this is true. Northeast Minneapolis claims to have the highest concentration of Catholic churches anywhere in the world outside of Vatican City. Um, I don't know if that's true, but there certainly seems to be a Catholic church on every corner. Um, <laughs> also, also, uh, an immigrant community. So we encountered people who were Ukrainian Orthodox and Lutheran and Jewish and so on and so forth. Um, I enjoyed Catholic school. It was, I mean, it was school. Um, the religious teachings often put me in conflict. Uh, many of the teachers were nuns. This was back in the 1970s. And they were sympathetic, but really, I think a lot of them just thought we were weird. Um,
4: <laughs> you no, know,
2: um, they, they couldn't figure us out. My, my parents, uh, back in the 70s, started one of the first yoga and meditation studios in the Twin Cities. And back then, yoga meditation was kind of a scary thing for most Americans. Uh, people didn't understand it. So the combination of being that Hindu family and then my parents being those meditation people, I got to have a lot of very interesting conversations. And um, I wasn't always a very polite child. I tended to <laughs> Uh, pretty aggressive verbally, and um, I did go to church every Friday with my class. Uh, however, I think by about third grade, I was excused from religion class because I was arguing. Um, I didn't argue with the way Catholicism was represented. I had kind of felt uh, conflicts when other religions, when we did the sort of you know world religions uh, section. And the way that Hinduism was represented at the time was very offensive to me and in terms that I think today would not really be acceptable in a Catholic school, especially with a Hindu child in the room. So I, I argued. And um, so instead of religion class, I got my parents somewhere dredged up a Hindu deity's coloring book. And I got to go sit in the library and color in pictures of Krishna while my classmates had their world religions class. Oh,
0: wow. <laughs> <gosh. laughs> but That, that is be- a story. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but that being said, I have a, a deep affection for Catholicism. Um, you know, I went to church every Friday Friday. Um, at times when I'm troubled, I feel very comfortable going and sitting quietly in a Catholic church. I think there's a great deal of beauty in the religion. So that's something my parents wanted for us. And likewise, when we moved to India, we were exposed as much to Islam and Sikhism, Buddhism, and Jainism as we were to Hinduism. My my parents wanted us to kind of understand the diversity and really they emphasize the, the unifying streams is the phrase that my father used to use, um, the unifying Mm. between religions. And I feel that very strongly. Um, but I also do feel that these are unique traditions and we can approach philosophically and say, yes, it's all paths, same mountain, but like language, um, we still have to respect some of the rules that come with it. Um, back to the sort of my analogy of language, you know, English has loan words from many languages, from from French, from German, Spanish, even from Hindi. But as an English speaker, you have to learn which words are appropriate. I can't just suddenly start throwing Hindi words into English. If that makes sense, right? Um. All languages are related. They are all the daughter of ancient languages. They're all, you know, most languages are sister languages. That's how I see religion very much, and also the diversity within it. I found very Minnesotan Um, when I spent time in New Orleans. uh, I had to learn a new vocabulary. I had to change the way I pronounced certain words to be understood, Um, speaking English in the UK, where I went to school for a time was a different experience. Speaking English in India is a different experience. And so it is with religion.
3: Oh, wow. I I feel like, I feel like before we even get into, um, some of the nuances of, of the religion, I, I feel like we would be remiss, um, to not mention where the name derives from, and the fact that I didn't, I had no idea. Oh, I have no until idea. I took a religion course in grad school, and mm-hmm. I, I certainly do not profess to be an expert in any any religion, including my own. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know enough to know how ignorant I I am and was. Uh, That's why we like you, John, to, uh, to other religions. <laughs> but but I was shocked to find out that the term uh, Hindu Hinduism is actually a Western, a Western term. Is that correct?
2: Yes, Yes, it is. And even the term religion, um, is a very weighted term. I struggle a little bit. Like, I, I don't know whether to call it Western Judeo Christian, uh, Euro American. Um, so we'll go with Western and my apologies, you know, to listeners who, object to that because there are certainly Western traditions that do not fit this sort of mainstream, um, philosophy. Um, but yeah, even the way that we study religion is, is very slanted. Uh, Hinduism is a term, you know, it comes from the Indus, the Indus river. So it was anyone who was East of the Indus was Hindu. Um, but one of the difficulties that I have sometimes in talking about Hinduism is talk, just the, the idea about religion, talking to most Americans. The basis for comparison and a lot of the terminology comes out of, let's just call it a Christian perspective.
4: Mm-hmm. So,
2: you know, monotheism, polytheism, um, these terms are useful vocabulary, but they can also be really tricky. Um, Hinduism is considered polytheistic. A lot of Hindus object to that because we do not believe in many gods. We believe in many manifestations of one divine truth. So is wow. that wow? Right. So is that monotheism? Well. No. Is it polytheism? Mm, not really. So even these two, you know, if you take taking any religion courses, these are two terms that you're going to learn within the first week of class. Um, For those of us coming outside of Christian traditions, we have to really wrestle with these and kind of pull them apart a little bit. Um, So that can be really challenging when people say, well, you know, so you believe in many gods. I'm like, well, uh, kind of but not the way you mean. So that's something, again, that it's good to be alert to. Um, And again, I will always come back to my analogy of of language is, you know, as someone who has a mother tongue, when we learn a, a new language to really become fluent, we have to shift something in our thinking. It's not just learning vocabulary. It's not just learning a grammar structure. There are things that are expressed that are a little bit unique to each language, and we have to kind of let go of our idea of what this means. And there's some things that are just difficult to translate or awkward to translate. So when it comes to Hinduism, um, yeah, is it polytheistic? Yes. Is it monotheistic? Yes and that really comes what a lot of me in the wisdom comes down to is yes and yes and yes and sure but maybe not quite the way you meant it
0: that is amazing
3: i think i think that uh i love it i think the best the best uh example to give of of what you're what you're trying i think trying to say there is that even within christianity uh, last we checked, I think uh, within even uh, just north america alone if i if I remember correctly, there are over twenty five thousand denominations, yeah. or variations, yeah. if you will, yep right and, right and s- well, yeah.
2: yeah, and also, you know uh, when I was learning these phrases, monotheism, polytheism, I got very confused because, well, in Christianity, uh, let's take Catholicism because it's the uh, one denomination I'm more familiar with. Um, you have the saints. You have the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. So, is that polytheistic? No. Right. But it's right. something, right? Father, even just put the saints aside Father, Son, Holy Ghost. Um, as much as it's difficult to make one to one comparisons, I think that's the best way for someone familiar with Christianity to understand the complicated nature of what's considered Hindu polytheism is that the father, son and Holy ghost are not three different gods. Right.
0: They are man- um, right. And yes.
2: so, and so it is in Hinduism.
0: I mean, that is, I, I love one of the things that I love that you're touching on right now that is so useful. And it's, it's what John and I are hoping that this podcast kind of does is um, it can be so damaging to get so tied tight to language that you forget that language is not a static thing. Language is a dynamic thing. It's an evolving thing. It's a thing that has flexibility and life to it that changes. Um, Just, you know, get an edition of Webster's dictionary from a hundred years ago and look up the same words and compare them to the Webster's dictionary now. And you will see that language is something that evolves. And it's when we get too wrapped around like, well, this is just is what it is. And you're just assuming using these constructs. This is where deconstruction philosophy and like Derrida comes in and actually is v- offers a very helpful critique to tell everybody like, hang on, chill out. Like you don't even yeah. know what you're talking. You don't know what you're talking about.
2: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, one of the other, you know, analogies I used about the, the sort of monotheism polytheism is okay. So, um, take take myself as as a person um if you ask my husband who I am, well, I'm his wife, if you ask my sister well i'm I'm her sister, if you ask my mom, I'm her daughter, well, so it is with concepts of divinity. each of these people have a particular relationship with me, and so they see me in a particular way but who who am I so Man. That's kind of the, when you're getting a little deeper into Hinduism, why are there so many gods? Like, what's going on here? That's what's going on, is that we need to find a way to approach the divine um, or approach a particular philosophy. Uh, for me, the ideas of gods and the ideas of what gods represent philosophically, it's very mutable. It's very fuzzy for me. Um, are these actual entities, are these archetypal ideas, are these, um, you know, encoded mythos that help guide a society? Yes, yes, and yes. To me, all of it. But we have to remember that we are only seeing a, our relationship with it. Um, so, you know, often we're taken aback. Um, my husband and I have been married for over 20 years We're very close. I could describe him in lots of ways and tell you all about him. If I went to work with him one day, I would look at him and probably think, who is this guy? Oh yeah. Right. I don't know. Wow. Like I didn't know all the stuff about this guy. Um, I think so it is with, uh, you know, with faith traditions and with our ideas of the divine. And also, um, you know, Hinduism is a global religion. So, People are seeing images of Hindu deity figures, and they are interpreting them from where they're coming from. Mm. I don't object. I think that there's something useful for people, Um, I think especially for women coming out of certain Christian traditions, seeing um, images of goddesses that are carrying weapons can be a powerful revelation, because there isn't very much of that in Christianity. Catholicism, you know, we have Joan of Arc, we have a few kind of obscure female warrior saints, um, but the feminine divine is expressed fairly Mm -hmm. one-dimensionally. So for a young American woman um, who doesn't know anything about Hinduism, seeing that image of, say, the goddess Kali... You know, who has twenty arms and they're all carrying a weapon, and she's on a battlefield, and she's slaughtering all these people. It's like, oh, yeah, this is what I was waiting for.
4: <laughs> um,
2: <laughs> right? Like this is it. Um, you know, we have this new Wonder Woman movie coming out. Um, I have a a poster uh, in my office that is from a Wonder Woman comic book called "The Hecatea. And the cover image is Batman laying, laying down, and Wonder Woman's boot is on his face, right? So, <laughs> so when I see that as a Hindu, I see Kali. Wow. You know, in the image of Kali, she her foot is on Shiva. She has conquered one of the greatest gods. So as soon as my sisters and I, the Hikatea comic came out a number of years ago, when we saw the cover, we were like, Wow, look at that. Look at that. Um, so we see these different things. However, you know, as a as a Hindu, what I see in Kali is going to be a little bit different. Um, I'm seeing a narrative because I was raised with these stories. So, again, um, you know, we see these images. And they speak to us. They're powerful images. Um, but depending on where we come from, we're interpreting it differently. We're, we're building a relationship with something. And mm. I think that it's important to be really careful about saying, you know, I wouldn't want to tell someone, well, what you're seeing in Kali is wrong. Um, I think that's unfair and I don't think it's helpful. I could say, well... As a Hindu, I can share the story about Kali that I know, and maybe, you know, it will expand your horizon of what you're seeing in that image. But for that young woman, her interpretation of that image may be what she needs at that time, that that might be her relationship with Kali, if that makes sense.
3: Wow. So, so, uh, if we could, before we, I really want to get into definitely, um, talking about misconceptions and, and, and that sort of mm-hmm. thing. I think that's, that's really important. Before we do that, though, um, I was wondering if we could kind of give a little high level overview for those who aren't at all familiar with Hinduism. And, and obviously I know this is a tall order, um, <laughs> since we have you speaking on behalf of, of Hinduism. Um, but, uh, if we could, uh, what, what is, the the human problem to be solved within Hinduism uh, for Christianity obviously it would be you know our sinful destructive nature and and finding redemption within the world. What what is what is the equivalent if there is one within Hinduism?
2: Ah, oh, that's a tough one. Um, I'm I don't know if there's something that's quite unifying for all Hindus. The best I could do is to through doing through Through discovering our personal duty, um, coming to a place of balance and finding liberation. And by finding liberation, I mean, uh, you know Hindus believe in many incarnations that we are reborn again and again, um, and that the ultimate goal is to return to the source, to become one with a divine. From which we all originally sprang. Um, so yeah, I would, I would say, uh, there are many paths to liberation, to moksha. Um, but I think that would probably be the like unify, the unifying goal of humanity or the view of humanity is that we must go through experiences. We must find ourselves uh, through experience. And find a balance, and eventually reach a peaceful state where we're united with divine again.
3: So, when you when you speak of this uh, this cycle of, of rebirth, um, I'm assuming you're you're referring to samsara. Is that? Am I saying that correctly?
4: Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. Yeah.
3: Okay. the term Atman, uh, I thought was mm-hmm. fascinating, uh, because it, there, there are a lot of parallels there in terms of, you know, Christi- Christians obviously believe in a soul, um, mm-hmm. you know, at, uh, beyond the physical body, there's, there's something there, uh, beyond just our, our physical selves. Um, and, and Hindus do as well, it seems. Yes.
2: Yeah. Hindus do believe in a concept of the soul, the Atman, um, and it's very much, again, about a relationship. The relationship between Atman, which is like the soul, the self, I guess you could say. And Brahma, which is related to, but not to be quite confused with the God Brahma, which is the ultimate reality. So our wow. our Atma is yearning for, for this. We're looking for unity. Um, and... Samsara, we're reborn many times, and well, then this leads us nicely into discussion about misconceptions of karma. Um, One way that I hear it explained, um, you know, here in the U.S. is that karma is like debt, and so we accrue debt through our actions, and then if at the end of your lifetime, you haven't paid off all your debt, you come back, and you have to keep paying it off but you're, you know, also accruing it. I don't really like that explanation. I think it is technically correct, but, um, you know, we have a lot of cultural hang-ups here about the idea of debt. Um, And the thing with karma and karmic debt is that it is not a bad thing one of the explanations of why we're reborn again and again, why, why are we putting off this encounter? Why are we putting off returning to the divine? One explanation is that life is fun and that we want to keep coming back. So we accrue debt to give ourselves an excuse to come back. If that makes sense. Wow. Uh, So it's more, it's kind of like, you know, it's like if you meet somebody and you like you like them, but you're shy. Maybe you, I don't know, leave your sunglasses in their car so you can call them and say, "Hey, I left my sunglasses in your car. Could I, you know, could I get them? Because you want to see them again, right?"
4: Yeah, yeah. And that's,
2: so I, I've always that's how it was taught to me because I feel like the sort of cut and dried debt repayment. Is this sort of a negative slant to it? Uh, the way I taught was taught it is that life is joyful, and we want we want to have fun we keep having fun, and so we want to have more fun um, and so we keep coming back and slowly kind of through our through the the long long evolution of our soul, we gradually. In the same way that maybe when we were all younger, we liked to go out and party a lot. That's how we had fun, right? After a while, you're kind of tired. Like, it's Friday night. It's like, I just want to go home and, like, watch a movie. Um, So
0: so tired. (laughs) Right?
2: (laughs) (laughs) You know, I mean, I look back at, you know, what my weekends used to look like when I was 24 or 25. And, God, it was so much fun. But I'm 45 now, and I don't, I'm interested in other things.
0: Ain't nobody got time um, for that.
2: Yeah. Um, and we can't
0: hang um, anymore.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, and then it's like the hangover is not worth it. Right. Um, no, no way. Right. So first is first. So we kind of bring in a little moderation. Okay. Yeah. Let's go out for a drink, but yeah, I got to work in the morning. I need to be out of here by 10. And we evolve throughout our, our lifetime and we become concerned with other things. And, and, It's not that we aren't having fun. It's just that there's more than one kind of joy to be had. Um, And so this is in kind of a, if we can make a parallel between like the course of a lifetime and the course of a soul, is that, yeah, we want to keep coming back. But after a while, you start thinking, there's something else. What, you know, what, what comes next? Um, there's a game, a children's game. I can never remember in the U.S. if it's called snakes and ladders or shoots and ladders. Do you know what I'm talking about? Oh, sh-
3: yeah, shoots and ladders. Shoots yeah. and ladders. Oh, okay. Yeah,
2: ladders. Okay, so shoots and ladders is actually a very old Hindu game huh. that charted the course of a soul um, from sort of the time a soul formed through all the different life paths to the ultimate goal of moksha, of of liberation. And you go forward and you go back, right? You climb up and you drop down. And you're not necessarily dropping down because you did something wrong or you're being punished. You're dropping down because you're like, hey, that was fun. I kind of want to do that again.
4: So this
2: (laughs) is slow, you know, the slow
0: evolution of of our spiritual self so if i under, if i just I, have more, I would love to make sure i'm understanding this correctly because it's so mm-hmm. good are you kind of saying that the soul um interacting with the deeper the greater reality um that's there is interacting with it both in choice and desire and consequence like is it that kind of like yeah that yeah. is so cool man
2: yeah, absolutely, because consequence is not necessarily a bad thing.
0: No, no, not at all. It, it, you know, it is what it is. It is what it is.
2: Well, and we all, you know, remember that, okay, so getting back to, you know, kind of big picture Hinduism, all right, so it's not quite polytheism, but we do have three main gods, um, or we can say three main concepts, um, but gods is an easier term. So we have Brahma, who's the creator. And he made everything, or he's dreaming all of this, depending on who you ask. And sort of having done his job, he's like the person who builds your house. You never see them again, right? They build it, they leave. Um, Brahma's out there somewhere, but we don't really bother with him. Um, Then there's Vishnu, who is the preserver. And Vishnu's domain, Vishnu's responsibility, is manifest existence. And Vishnu has avatars. So, the hero myths that we hear, um, Krishna is an avatar of Vishnu. He's a manifestation of Vishnu who came to earth to do certain tasks to help humanity. Um, many of the hero sagas um, feature an avatar. So, Ram from the Ramayana was an avatar of Vishnu. So, Vishnu is concerned with balance and preserving the universe so he's he's the one who keeps the game board interesting and it comes along to help humanity periodically um and then we have shiva and shiva is often called the destroyer that is a difficult term it's true but there's kind of a negative connotation with it
4: um (laughs)
2: right so he's called the destroyer but also now it seems a little more um politically correct, I hear him refer to as the bringer of change. Um, So when existence is kind of running itself out, Shiva steps in and says, okay, we're wiping the game board clean. We're starting over. So these three ideas... it's like a a
0: cleansing. It's like a
2: cleansing. Yeah, it's a cleansing. Um, It's like, okay, using the analogy of a house, the house is old, it's falling down, It's going to be torn down, but a new house will be built there for someone to live in. Um, so Vishnu, Shiva and Brahma, they're they're all equally important. They cannot exist without each other. Uh, there are many wonderful tales of kind of the, the, the fights that they have with each other. Um, especially Vishnu and Shiva, because Vishnu wants things to keep going. Shiva's kind of like, eh, I don't know. I, I think we should start over. Um, So, thinking of the world as something to be overcome is kind of denying Vishnu. And I don't think most Hindus would want to do that. Vishnu's made this world, and, you know, there's all this exciting stuff to do, and also all this difficult stuff to do. Um, You know, another thing about... Karma that I think is not well understood is, it's not reward and punishment. It is simply consequence. Um, For example, I told you in in 2013, I had a head injury. Um, I ride horses. I have two horses. Um, One of my horses is absolutely gigantic. He weighs 1,700 pounds. I wasn't paying attention, and he headbutted me. Ooh. So you could say, well, that was my karma. Well, technically, sure. But it was also my choice to live with a 1,700-pound animal. So karma is very tricky. Um, it's not like a bolt from the blue. And I think often discussions of karma uh, kind of revolve around events, and that's also difficult um, to try to say, well, this event happened, you know, uh, I don't know. I'm trying to think of a good example. Like, um, this event happened because I had to pay the debt for being mean to someone or cutting somebody off in traffic. I and mean, I don't really think karma works that way. Um, the other thing about karma, a way to understand it is less sort of less of a moral judgment and more of kind of a spiritual interpretation of the laws of thermodynamics.
0: That makes sense so, actually. Yeah.
2: Right. So, um, in order for me to function, I have to eat that food is coming from somewhere. Um, this isn't a good thing or a bad thing. It's just a, a thing. um, If we pollute our environment, if we pollute our water, we're going to be drinking out of that same polluted water. No one's come along and poisoned our water supply, right? Um, we're not being punished. It's the consequence of how we're treating the environment. So that's the piece about karma that I think often gets left out, um... And to be fair that it is always, you know, those who are most vulnerable who are the most adversely affected by our collective
0: I mean, I feel like you just literally summed up the entire book of Proverbs. That's basically what the entire book of Proverbs teaches in, in, in the in the Christian Bible. I mean, like plain and simple. From what you said yeah. about the poor, the poor and the vulnerable, to how consequence is built in as like the inherent nature of actions in reality, right? And and, and wisdom is just gaining an understanding of that.
4: <laughs> yeah.
0: Man, that's good stuff. Thank so, you. Um,
3: I want to keep Thank you going on on this track. I was to say uh I, I, this is great and I I would love to hear you because there's there's something that you said in an article that I read that you posted I think on the Huffington Post uh, along the same thought but um along the lines of uh additional misconceptions that that I know you've encountered that I've I've also encountered um from a third third person third party perspective but um the the issue with with caste system and 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 how that Uh, how that works in India and, and how that comes across as, as kind of a criticism over in the, in the U S primarily. Right.
2: Well, it's a valid criticism. Um, but you know, the, the caste system is simply a class system. Um, I have been lucky to travel and live in many parts of the world, and I have yet to go someplace that didn't have a class system. Um, I think, Cast, first of all, cast comes from caste that's a Portuguese word. Um, it's not a word that originates within Hindi or Sanskrit. Um, and it was simply, it means uh, class. So because Hinduism is old, many of these things are encoded in it and seem very rigid and very hard to overcome. Um, but we have the same, you know... As far as I can see, um, all our major societies around the world are hierarchical and are, for the most part, patriarchal. And this comes with a lot of problems. You know, the vocabulary that we use will change. um, But, okay, so right now, you know, if I'm talking to an American friend and I say the 1%, that's indicating a Right. Every everybody knows what I mean. Okay. Yep. If I say hipsters,
4: everybody <laughs> knows. What I mean, right? yeah.
2: Everybody knows what I mean. And what's weird is like these are kind of like hipsters, especially is like an invented class. Is there a thing?
4: But, I love it. You know
2: what are the what are the parameters? I mean, uh, how how long does your beard have to be? You know, I mean, it just <laughs> you know all of this stuff is coming from people outside of. That I love
0: class. it. I love um, it. Yeah. I love talking about hipsters.
2: (laughs) If I say working class, okay, if I say the working poor, um, if I'm a person that doesn't care about hurting people's feelings and I say white trash, those all give very specific socioeconomic codes to another American. So it is with caste and Hinduism. Um, There, there are divisions and hierarchy it is an oppressive system. I believe that there's a lot of work being done and has been a lot of work trying to pull those barriers down to give more people fair opportunities. But it's a problem. Um, and it, as far as I can see, it remains a problem. Um, and one that I hesitate to speak too much about because I am Brahmin. I was born into the highest caste. So my work, my responsibility is to get out of the way um, and to confront it with other Brahmins when I see it. I have an interesting lived experience as a Hindu because when I'm in the U.S., I'm a minority and I'm disadvantaged for that. When I'm in India, I'm the majority, India is 80% Hindu, and I am sort of not economically, but maybe socially kind of a 1% in being brahmin. So when I'm in India, I live with a great deal of privilege. And in the same way that I speak to my white friends and my male friends and my Christian friends in America and say, look, it's not, no one's blaming you for your privilege. No one wants you to feel guilty for your privilege. So please be aware of it, and leverage it.
0: Hey, That is awesome.
2: Um, I I know how hard it is to hear that because I have to say that to myself when I'm in India, that I am in a position of privilege here, and I need to be aware of it, and I need to not feel guilty, which I do feel guilty, um, but I need to get over it and stop making it all about me and figure out, how can I leverage this privilege? So the work that my family's been doing in India with marginalized communities, that's a way that we are trying to leverage our privilege and to educate children, whether they're boys or girls, whether they're Hindu or Muslim, and especially regardless of what caste they're born into. And there needs to be more projects like that. And I do... Ah, uh, you know, I want to believe that things are changing, that it's less rigid than it used to be. But sometimes it's hard, to, you know, being engaged in any kind of activist work, um, it's hard. It's hard to measure. And I think sometimes we can get a little bit lost in trying to measure in a way of reassuring ourselves that we're doing the right thing. Um, So I try to just focus on the work and to confront it when, you know, other Hindus who are high caste um, say things. And it's the same, you know, with any privileged group. Some things are overt. Some things are a little more subtle.
1: Um,
2: And to just try to challenge that where we find it. So, yes. To sum up, caste is a problem. However, coming back to my experience as a Hindu American, it gets really tiring answering, like, responding to the same assumptions. So I I sympathize when other Hindus, you know, are asked about caste or caste comes up, it doesn't seem like you can really read anything about Hinduism without caste coming up. And I agree that it should come up, but I also sympathize with kind of the level of exhaustion that comes for a lot of people of saying, listen, this isn't, this isn't only a Hindu problem. Um, this is class inequity, and it exists within our community. But could we please talk about something else? And I'm not saying that to you, like I'm quite happy to keep talking about it, but as you said, you know, with the misconceptions, it's not, it's not that Hindus aren't trying to confront this, it's that it can be very difficult to talk about something that you're struggling with within your culture when it feels like the worst things about your culture have become the way that they're defined by outsiders. Does that make sense?
4: Yeah. Yeah, definitely.
2: I I think a lot of Hindus are pretty sensitive about it, and I sympathize with it. Yeah. Uh, But I also feel like, well, this isn't like a weird thing that Americans are misinterpreting. This is a real thing. Um, Mm -hmm. But to be fair, it is not a Hindu thing as far as I can tell, it's a human thing. Um, and I agree, right. Absolutely confronted, but as Hindus, as a Hindu, I have a particular responsibility to confront it, you know, within Hinduism to the best of my ability, just as, you know, as an American, I have particular responsibilities. So, It wouldn't be particularly useful for me to say, oh, well, you know, sexism is a problem everywhere. So why are we talking about sexism in America? Mm -mm, I want to go the other way. I want to say sexism is a problem everywhere. And let's talk about sexism in our own community because this is where we can have an effect on it.
0: Absolutely. That is so good. That is so good. We... We love this conversation. We, uh, we, we, could go, we could go, we could go all night long. Um, I feel like there's a million, a million other things we could ask you, but instead of asking you another question, um, just in closing here, I thought I'd just give you some space to just, uh, yeah, just address our listeners. Say, uh, if, if there's something that you'd like to say, um, and you think we need to hear since you do this interfaith dialogue and you, uh, you're passionate about that and uh, you've got a lot of work you're doing, which is wonderful. If there's something you'd like to leave us with, uh, what would it be?
2: Um, well, I think it would be maybe a little less of the Hindu and more, uh, especially right now, just as a brown skin woman in America, uh, don't let your fear rule you. We're all scared right now. um, we, we may have different reasons that we're scared about things that are happening in our country. We feel the need to protect ourselves. Uh, people feel the need to protect their families or their culture, their ideals. And fear is, is a real thing, and it can be a necessary thing, but don't let your fear be the thing in the driver's seat. When you meet someone that looks different or sounds different, give it a chance. Be aware of your fear, but let it, let it pass over you and try to open yourself up to that other person and find out who they are before you decide that they're a threat.
3: Oh, that is so good, man. Well, as we, uh, as we, wrap up this podcast um, I really enjoy reading some of your work that you you have online um, so where where can we direct our listeners who uh, I'm sure are going to want to get out there and, and read what you have um, what, what's the easiest place to find your work and uh, and stay on top of what you're up to
2: um, well you know I I like ever have the ambition of putting together a nice professional website with links to everything <laughs> uh, <laughs> you no know, maybe um, you know, I write periodically at the Huffington Post. Um, you can also follow me on Facebook. Um, I think Facebook uh, and Twitter. On Twitter, I'm Insomnia sound. Facebook, it's Samia Arya Haz. And I usually, I write for a variety of places right now. Um, you know, I'm working for Agape Editions as well. So that's bringing a lot of interfaith work. Um, so yeah, I would say find me on Facebook or look me up on HuffPost.
3: Perfect. And we'll, we'll definitely have all of those links in our show notes uh, so people can, can uh, be directed over to those places. And um, Adam and I just want to say uh, a huge thank you for, for you coming on the show and uh, giving us some of your time uh, to talk about what we think is a really, really important topic right now, especially um, in the United States. And, uh, and hopefully um, people can, can start that dialogue, start that conversation and uh, start opening up their doors.
2: Well, thank you for um, being such a great platform for this. I'm really honored. I had fun talking to you guys. Um, and yes, thank you for inviting me and for hosting this and featuring so many diverse people whose words need to get out there.
0: Mm, we are honored to be with you. So thank you.
2: Okay. Thank you, guys.
0: All right, take care.
2: Bye.
3: Right, so Hinduism. Hinduism. Goodness. Um, I love that episode, uh, specifically because when I was taking, you know, my courses through seminary, and, and just kind of, like, Hinduism was one of those religions where, like, I literally nothing about it. I know yeah. next to nothing. Well, and it, it, it's But I not-
0: act like I know more, like, if I'm in <laughs> casual conversation. Full disclosure. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The whole, like, yeah, yeah, the thing. Yeah, the oldest religion. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. totally.
3: I'll be honest, like, you know, like our comfort zone is, is the Abrahamic traditions, right? Like we can, we can BS a little like Judaism. Two thirds of it for me. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You can, you can fake, you can fake uh, some of those other religions because they're so like interrelated. Correct. Uh, You can't really do that with Hinduism. With the oldest, you know, organized. It's probably one of the oldest, right? If not the oldest. I think, yeah, I believe it is the oldest. uh, I know Buddhism is born out of Hinduism. Uh, same thing with like Sikhism, right. um, Jainism, uh, a lot of the other like Eastern I know, religions. Like,
0: Brahmanism know, may archaeologically speaking, I believe so. Yeah, like kind of predate, but it's linked to I'll read Karen Armstrong's
3: case for God, it's all in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, um, pro, uh, pro, uh, prostero, uh, Stephen, um uh, uh, another oh, prothro, relig- pro, yes, yeah, prothro. Thank you. Yeah, got you. I, I heard how to pronounce that today for the first time, and I was like, I've been saying it wrong in my brain the it's entire okay. time. But, it's okay. But um, uh, God is One, Uh really great book yep. um, uh, to check out. Like, good overview on um, a lot of the major religions in oh, the world. Oh, God is Not One. God is Not One. That's Yeah, let's right. put the knot in there. Yes. Let's tie a knot around that. <laughs> God is Not One.
0: It's on your bookshelf. It's right
3: here. I know, literally. we have. We're sitting in a room with three bookshelves. It's late. It is. <laughs> it is. You guys have no idea. We record these episodes, like, when we can, and uh, yeah. it happens to be after the kids go to bed.
0: And we've trimmed the intros now. We have. So you just get to listen to us debrief at the end. Which makes, which makes sense. Thank you, iTunes negative reviews. <laughs> after you crushed our souls, we, uh, we sat down, <laughs> and uh, we cried, we hugged each other, we held each other. We did. While drinking. Yeah. And then we decided it was actually true.
3: Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're not wrong iTunes, uh, but yeah. So, so like Hinduism is one of those religions where it 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 differs greatly from Christianity and and Judaism and and even Islam, and and so like it, it's easy to to misunderstand it. I think. And oh my so gosh! Yes, that that is why I wanted to get um somebody on who could speak to it from an expert point of view especially because all these other religions were kind of born out of it, um, out of the Vedic traditions. And um, uh, I, honestly, for me, the biggest misconception was the fact that, like, they have, like, thousands of gods, right? That's what I was always told. Yeah. And so, like, mainstream Hinduism these days, um, uh, you know, like, believes in one, one overlying god and multiple manifestations of that, of that god. Which,
0: by the way, read the old Testament and even the New Testament in, in some regards, because one of the things that I think is so mind blowing and leaves this so wide open, um, you know, prepare yourselves for a a small rant, but when the Hebrew God starts to come on the scene in the Hebrew literature, comes on the scene, refusing to be named, refusing to be isolated So you've got Moses, you know, walking in the desert, sees the burning bush, you know, you're going to get sent back to your people. Who do I say sends me? And the voice says, I am. And it's like, I am, I am what? And it's like, exactly. (laughs) I am just, that's it. Like, it's going to look, it's going to take a lot of different shapes. We're going to use a lot of different symbols, There's going to be a lot of different voices. There's going to be a lot of different authors. There's going to be a lot of different witnesses. There's going to be a lot of different things going on. But it all comes back to I am. I am what exactly? Uh, And it's like, oh, yeah, Hinduism. Like when we actually started to talk to this lady, it's like, look at the overlap here. Now, don't everybody get your pants in a bunch. Like, (laughs) I don't know exactly what I'm saying about that, except that we need to be able to have more conversations where we look at the commonalities and we look at the beauty and the grace and the overlap and stop asking, well, are you right? Am I right? Is this right? Is it? It's just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. maybe get to that later. Maybe. But a long way down the road, we've got a lot of work to do before you ever even have the right to get
3: there. Just,
0: yeah. can you just talk?
3: Yes. And that, and that is what this series is all about. This, this entire series, all three guests that we've had, uh, the, the entire purpose of having these three guests on and, and talking about these three very different religions is, is to say, look, like there is beauty in all of these religions. And like can we just stop for a second, just stop the craziness and talk to one another? Sit down and have some coffee or tea or whatever you drink and, and, and sit down and talk to one another. That's right. Like, like, I'm sorry, but if you have listened to these three episodes and you haven't found something beautiful in each of these religions, you weren't paying attention. You weren't freaking paying attention. And, and like, uh, one of the interesting, the in, interesting things, I think, uh, specifically when it comes to Hinduism, is we talk about some of the uh, spiritual terms, right? So we talk about Brahman, mm-hmm. which is described within the Hindu religion as the ground of all being. Hmm. For some of you, that Where should sound I heard very that
0: familiar. Yes. Is there a Protestant theologian that talked about God as the ground of being? Paul T. Paul e. T.
3: Paul e. T. Paul so, Tillich. Paul Tillich. The ground of all being. Like, I, I literally wrote a paper on this because as I started to understand the, uh, the definitions of some of these terms within Hinduism, I was like, wait a minute. This sounds very familiar. This sounds like Tillich. This sounds like Barth. This sounds like uh, Anselm. Rahner. Rahner. Oh, Carl Rahner. Like, Catholic theologian. This sounds like a lot of these guys who we've grown up with. Don't and even it. get me started on Rumi. Oh. You know, I'm reading Rumi right now. A lot so of Rumi. Good. Get
0: out of here right now. Yeah. Get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> He's like the original interfaith guy. Yeah. He's like Persian, born into Islam, Muslim. And he's constantly referring to the fact that like, I don't know who I am. I'm, I'm nobody. I'm nothing. I'm emptiness. I'm, I'm connected to that which is closer than my breath. And it's like, oh my gosh, are you serious right now? There's so much of this out there. And here's what we're not saying. We are not saying abandon your tradition, abandon where you've grown up and seek all the truth elsewhere with the point of converting to Judaism or converting to Islam or converting to Hinduism. That is literally not what we're saying. That's the antithesis of what we're saying. We're saying in order to know who you are better, in order to know where you are better, in order to be more at peace with where you are in the world that surrounds you, you need to learn how to dialogue and find the beauty and the humanity and the divinity and the commonality while maintaining your roots deeper and deeper wherever you are. We constantly get asked questions, don't we, John, about, oh man, you know, this is all opening it up and I just, I think I'm going to go over here or I'm going to go over there or maybe I should do this or maybe I should do that or what 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 does it all mean? And what do we always say? It's like, probably stick where you are and go deeper there while gaining an appreciation for everywhere else because like i could learn french right now right it's a beautiful language i could learn it i love french culture i love french wine i love french food i love french art i love french music but like let's get honest man i'm never going to be french at this point <laughs> like i'm i could be a way better and more beautiful manifest, manifestation of an american christian Because it's what I know, it's where I was born, it's where my roots have already dug deep. And there's so much there that experiencing Judaism deeper can help me become a better American Christian. Experiencing Hinduism deeper can help me become American. Like, do you know what I'm saying? Like, there's so much there in the reflection and in the exercise of talking to people that are different than you that isn't supposed to move you along because we're all in this American mindset of always finding what's right and what's better. And that's just dualism. Like, yeah, don't worry about that right now. Where are you? It's okay. Go deeper. Yeah. That's all I got. Sorry. You, <laughs> let, you let me rant. You did it.
3: It's your fault. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm with you, man. I, there's, there's a uh, Catholic theologian named Ramon Panikar, who was uh one of those guys who was influential in uh, Vatican II and that sort of thing? And contemporary of Rahner? Uh yeah, actually. And uh he, he has this famous quote where he says, I left Europe as a Christian, I discovered I was a Hindu and I returned as a Buddhist without ever having ceased to be a Christian. Oh man. And this guy was one of those guys who just traveled all over the world and he and he and he found beauty in all these different uh religions, these different uh traditions. Mm. Um, and it made him a stronger Christian. It made him a better person. You know, he found all these, these things, um, these beauties and these things to be gained in all these different religions, these different faiths, these different traditions and that sort of thing. And, and it all influenced his work. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, yeah, there, there, there was another theologian that, that uh, I remember reading way back who said that uh, you can, um, it, it's almost better. To read another religion's yes. spiritual text because you're not, um, you're, I forget what he said, but you're not clouded. You're not, um, um, there, there's no restriction. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Don't you wish you could read the Gospels with those fresh eyes? Oh, all don't the you time. wish you could? I wish I could. I try to get myself in that mindset, but I can't. I know. And so to read the Bhagavad Gita, to read the Quran, to read the Jewish texts with the rabbis instead of the evangelical commentators is a little bit of a window into that. And it reminds me of this great Kipling quote that I love that I've used in sermons before. Kipling says, and what should they ever know of England who only England knew? Ah, because you got to leave home sometimes to appreciate where you're at. And, and part of that is what we're doing here, which I think is, super beautiful it's like the uh, man i'm like a quote junkie right now Do you ever hear that that prost that Prost quote that he says um having new perspective isn't seeing new vistas it's seeing with new eyes and it's just like it it's the same land you have to see it in a different way and sometimes you got to leave and come back to see it in a different way
3: that's the hero's journey Oh, Joseph Campbell. Yep. You're going Joey, Joey Cam's on Sweet me, right? Joey now. Cam. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. So he says you have to go on that journey and you have yes. to come back.
0: Yes. That's so beautiful. like so so friends out there that are listening to this and you don't have any idea what we're talking about right now. <laughs> here's here's the bottom line. It's okay. Don't be afraid. Go pick up something that you haven't read before. Mm. go engage with somebody you haven't talked to before and you will find yourself who you didn't know
3: yeah and guess what if you're a christian and you're listening to this and it made you uncomfortable the last few weeks having to listen to um representatives of other religions um that's okay you liked it yeah you liked it it's okay let's get honest but like, but let's let's be honest for a second. It's it's not going to affect your ability to be a Christian.
0: No, and it shouldn't. For no. crying out loud. That's so ridiculous. Yeah. All the different religions that Jesus engaged while he was in, you know, the you know, the Sidonians and the woman at the well and, you know, just even the Pharisees, you know, and just just dialoguing and wrestling and 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 talking about something that transcends all of it how can you miss that when you, you can't read the gospel of John and tell me that that guy wasn't like a couple clicks above like where everybody else was at. He's kind of like operating on a different plane. Like probably the other disciples are like, have you talked to John lately? That guy (laughs) is smoking something like (laughs) he is. It's so there that um, it's beautiful to not be afraid.
3: So we, we we really hope you guys enjoyed the last few weeks. We've really enjoyed having these conversations. Obviously. We hope to do this again. We will absolutely do this again. Um and, and hopefully dive into even more religions. Who knows? Like I like we'll it say when you do this with your hands. <laughs> <laughs> it's good it's good visual. It's so good. Guys, I'm throwing my hands up in <laughs> the air right now because I'm so excited. <laughs> <laughs> but like We definitely will do this again. We had so much fun, and uh, we can't wait to do it again. And uh, we hope you guys learned a little something that maybe you didn't know beforehand.
0: Send us some other perspectives that you'd like to hear. Yeah. And we'll try to get them in the can. Yeah. For now, we are your tired, slightly buzzed, (laughs) hosts. You gave away our secrets. So enjoy doing this with you guys. I am Adam Narlock and I am John Williamson. Keep deconstructing.
1: Ooh, ooh, ooh. thinking about you, so when I come try you.